pleasure to be joined on the phone by Dr. Jeffrey Myers. Jeff, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Shane? I am well. Uh, no shortage of things to talk about. Uh, I'm really curious, uh, considering your background and your perspective, uh, what you thought about uh, Brett Kavanaugh's uh, sort of back and forth that captivated the United States and probably a good chunk of us here in Canada last week, uh, where he, uh, I guess he was on second, but uh, his accuser coming up first and, and kind of laying out her case. And then uh, he responded. I know some uh, U.S. newspaper headlines were, were running the uh, She Said He Screamed <laughs> headline. But uh, what, what was your thought as far as a, a Supreme Court nominee and how he presented himself? It's an extraordinarily resident moment. Um, and I think that's true uh, for the U.S. But I think, you know, in terms of, you know, U.S. politics being a kind of form of spectacle, which everybody consumes, including Canadians, it had just real strong resonance, I think, for probably millions of people around the world who were transfixed by the testimony between these two individuals. And, of course, there's also this kind of historical resonance because of the testimony of Anita Hill before a slightly differently composed Senate Judiciary Committee in 1991, and, and, the, and, the, and the idea that now you know we've entered into a new post-Me Too phase in which we're going to treat these kind of issues differently. It's a confluence, a kind of perfect storm of, um, of issues. I'm curious, and we'll get to the FBI investigation in a minute, but I'm curious, and it's been you know, emphasized, he's not on trial here. Uh, this is, by every degree, a job interview. Uh, in your mind, did he pass the job interview to go to the Supreme Court based on what he has presented to the public, or no? Short answer, no, in my opinion. But that no was existed before, in fact, any of this came out due to the way he had handled, in a kind of dissembling manner, and I think evasive way, questions about um, his role as uh, member of White House counsel for President Bush, both uh, in terms of uh, his uh, involvement or non-involvement on so-called torture memos, as well as the appointment of judges uh, in his role as White House counsel for George W. Bush. And then, of course, also I thought it strangely reeked of hypocrisy because I remembered you know, his crusade against Bill Clinton as the right-hand man of Kenneth Starr. So I never had held him in very high esteem, and I always thought he was very political. And then when this firestorm hit and he headed out to Fox News as a first port of call and then really sort of made very partisan comments uh, in his confirmation hearing in that uh, forum, I think he disqualified himself for the bench by virtue of being nakedly political, even before and above the credibility of the story which is told by multiple accusers now, and the first one which America saw had a great deal of credibility. I think most people agreed that uh, agreed with that. And I, I share that opinion. I mean, I thought she was credible. However, that's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but he's not entitled to a fair trial. He's not being convicted of a crime. We're talking about not appointing him to the highest court in the land, a great privilege, a great honor. He has no entitlement to it. Should he be given due process in terms of how how these claims are heard. And, uh, you know, of course he should be, and he is. Um, but, you know, it takes a lot, and I understand this might have been unpleasant for him, but it takes a lot of privilege to sort of stand up there and act all enraged when what we're talking about is clearing you for an appointment to the Supreme Court, which is an honor of a lifetime. And again, you know, if he doesn't get it, he goes back to the D.C. Court of Appeals, which is basically the second highest court in the U.S., and continues uh, his privileged lifetime tenure there. So it's just it's crazy to think that this guy's being, you know, unfairly done, as it were. Uh, there are problems with him all along, and now there are these credible allegations, and the FBI is properly investigating, and hopefully that investigation won't be curtailed. 
but, you know, I don't know if it'll resolve matters or not, but at least it's the, a, a one move in the right direction. What did you think of the uh, the GOP members on the Senate hearing uh, who brought in a, a state prosecutor, uh, a female lawyer, uh, to do their questioning for them? I assume to avoid the optics of having uh, an all-male half of the panel kind of grilling her. Well, I guess from the perspective of the GOP um, majority on that panel, and it's, it's interesting to note that I think I, I, I don't remember the exact number, but there's definitely some overlap, and it definitely includes Chuck Grassley, Orrin Hatch, and a few of those senior Republican senators were on the same committee in the um, in the um, in the in the in Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill days. So they've been there for years. That just gives you an idea of just how sclerotic perhaps some of these uh, Senate committees are. But nevertheless, they um, you know they remember the lesson, which was that it looked like the men were pillaring. Well, in fact, they were pillaring. Um, uh, a credible female victim, right? Um, so they didn't want to get, they didn't want to make, make again. So they decided to hire as legal counsel uh, somebody who was, a, I think, a deputy prosecutor in in Arizona and who is pr- specialized in prosecuting sex crimes, which is an entirely different thing, might I add, than asking questions in a Senate committee of somebody who has a credible allegation against the Supreme Court nominee. It's not exactly the same skill set. Nevertheless. They thought it would be good to have a woman, and they thought this would be the right person to do the job. She wasn't particularly effective. I think it was un- she was unclear as to what she was supposed to be doing and didn't have much room to maneuver. And then, in typical fashion, the Republican majority took over and went on to like extended tirades, including a, a notable tantrum um, by one Senator Lindsey Graham. Yeah. Uh, one of the sort of uh, spin-offs of this, of course, as we've, we've referenced already, is this FBI investigation. They have a weak timeline to go and, I guess, reopen the case in Mr. Kavanaugh and see what they can see. Uh, in light of that, I know U.S. President Donald Trump has said, listen, this thing's wide open. I'm not meddling with it. Uh, it's completely up to the Senate committee to decide how this thing is structured. But my understanding is, uh, while he says that, the, the authority to structure or instruct the FBI lies entirely with his office. You know, I, to be honest, I haven't researched this question, and, and when I looked at this, when I heard, he said contradictory things, and there's been a lot of contradictory things said in the media about it, that ranging from commentators saying, well, in order for the FBI to investigate, the president has to direct them to investigate. And, you know, whether that's true or not, I don't know. It doesn't totally make sense to me that it would be for a variety of reasons. But nevertheless, he's now said he's directed the FBI to investigate, but he's giving them uh, one week, and that he's there's there's limited parameters, and then in another interview, not limited parameters. The whole thing's very opaque, and I think it would require more research on my part, or at least a little more background reading, to be certain I was clear um, on exactly what the law governing, you know, the president's degree of control over an FBI investigation of this sort. But it's all getting very close and tangled because the primary actors in all of this are, of course, you know, Rod Rosenstein and some of the same people who are also. Uh, involved in the Mueller invest in overseeing the Mueller investigation. So, and of course, if Brett Kavanaugh was was appointed to the court, he might end up hearing matters which relate to what's going on now. So, it's a, an incredible, incredibly catastrophic mess. Oh, you and I have talked about in the past this timeline that the GOP wanted to get Kavanaugh in place oh. before they hit the midterms. I'm just curious, in light of this whole mess, timeline-wise, is is there anything there now that that uh, overlaps with or prevents this thing from resolving itself, again, with some question marks about how it's going to within the timeline before midterms? Well, I mean, they were talking about bringing having the committee, you know, um, send it to the Senate on Tuesday, I believe, which is tomorrow. I'm not sure. I haven't followed this morning what what's developed there i 
you know, the truth is, is that there's several senators and uh, who aren't on the committee, uh, namely uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska and uh, Senator Susan Collins of Maine, who are usually seen to be uh, moderate uh, uh, women Republicans uh, who are on occasion willing to break with their party's orthodoxy where human decency calls upon them to do so. Of course, matters have been slowed down in committee because of the investigation, largely at the behest of Jeff Flake, who has little to lose because he's leaving the Senate uh, and doesn't going to have to worry about a backlash by Trump loyalists. But, you know, how long he can hold it up, I don't know. Once it goes to the general Senate, though, there is there is a, a number of, you know, uh, Joe Manchin is a Democrat, sometimes votes to the Republicans. What's he going to do? Heidi Heitkamp, who, of course, was treated very disrespectfully by uh, Judge Kavanaugh, who, by the way, apologized to her for his cheeky kind of responses to her questions. Um, you know, all these people are going to have to decide. So, I mean, certainly there's a chance it could be derailed. Um, I, I, I always have an eye to what kind of wily strategies or tactics Mitch McConnell might use in terms of getting things done. He's very good at that. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, but either way, as I think we discussed very briefly on a prior spot, I mean, whether he succeeds or not, whether this co- confirmation goes through or not, or whether it's somebody else, it, it's like it can kind of wash out in the, um, I mean, as a cultural moment, it can't wash out. It's going to have the, the Me Too movement and the larger cultural milieu. That's very meaningful. But w- what happens specifically with Mr. Kavanaugh and whether he gets appointed or not, that might wash out if it's it's going to be, it could easily be you know ten or fifteen other judges approved by the um, you know the Federalist Society, which is a conservative judicial watchdog whose recommendations Mr. Trump has basically just accepted without further ado anyway. So he's working his way down the list. Interesting. Uh, today, fresh in the news is the renegotiated North American Free Trade Agreement, now known as the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, uh, something Mr. Trump categorizes as a terminate and replace, although in reality it's just been renamed. Uh, this thing has still got to pass uh, the two houses in each of the three countries involved, so six, uh, six different legislative chambers. Uh, what's your sort of read on the, on the political side in the states on, on this sort of renamed agreement? You know, a great deal of caution, a great deal of caution. Again, not being a trade expert, um, you know, it's, it's hard for me to hold forth on sort of, um, you know, in each of the various industries who the winners and losers are, but it's obvious that there's been some sort of give and take there. And you can see, for example, early on that, you know, uh, the dairy industry, for example, is very unhappy with what's happened to them, but there's a bit of a sigh of relief in the automobile industry. There's an additional degree of complexity. My understanding is that the... Um, the steel and aluminum tariffs are not off, and that's kind of a separate thing. Of course, another cloud hanging over it is that this is something that the Mexican president is doing with one foot out the door as a new president with a very different political ideology comes in. Nevertheless, when you look at what's happened, there have been some concessions there, I think, for labor and that are good. Um, and, you know, I think Canada has protected some industries, and get, there's been some give and take, but they've kept aspects of dispute resolution. It's too early to say, I think, more analysis of the sort of fine grain of the detail will be required and maybe even months or years for this to dust out. And yes, you're right to raise the fact that significant legislative approval is required in all three countries, and that could get complicated for many reasons. Midterms in the U.S., new Mexican president in, the, in, in Mexico. Canada's probably going to be the easiest, it's going to be the easiest, shockingly enough, for Canada, unless there's some objections from the provinces that we, we don't expect coming down the, the pike. But I think uh, my sense has always been this has been file that actually the Trudeau government, particularly I think because of the adeptness of Christian Freeland, have handled 
well. I mean, I've been very critical of this government and of this prime minister in particular in many things. But on this particular file, by kind of um, just keeping, you know, they waited until the U.S. was under some pressure. Trump needed a win. So he's got, he, he had to make a declaration that he'd wrapped up these new NAFTA negotiations. So this is where they're at. This is where the needle stopped. And it's not a total disaster and Canada's in. Um, but a lot of it, I think, is still unresolved or has yet to wash out. Yeah. Uh, and just sort of the final, it's not a really question, but a statement. Maybe I'll just get you to weigh in on sort of the political uh, turbulence of it all. But I was talking to uh, former senior Tory cabinet minister James Moore this morning, uh, who happens to sit on the NAFTA Trade Council struck by the Trudeau government and asked him whether this sort of sets a pattern in dealing with Mr. Trump. And he kind of said, well, there's no real handbook to dealing with Mr. Trump. But to Canada's point, they kept their eye on the ball. Uh, they kept they steered clear sort of the emotional investment of the daily roller coaster of what he said or did or tweeted whatnot and just kind of kept kind of slowly steadily moving forward on it again I mean I have no idea how you deal with Mr. Trump considering how he changes his stance and all the kind of jazz that, that comes with him but I, it struck me as a, as a valid point to make what do, what do you think of that I mean I think so I, I mean I guess I my sense was there was you know, that the, the the government, you know, knew that it wouldn't do any good to sort of insert other egos in the way of Mr. Trump's ego and that it would just have to kind of, you know, sort of, I think, just, you know, do, do the most uh, clear case it could with the aides and with the key players in the negotiations beyond Mr. Trump on the understanding that he was mercurial and there was very little that could be done to control him. I think everybody in the international community, including the United States allies, certainly it's been documented in Europe as well, have worked around Mr. Trump and worked with U.S. officials who are wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We understand the boss is not exactly clear or easy to deal with, and let's keep the ball rolling along. That said, I mean, Canada must have felt, uh, uh, Jeff Freeland and the Prime Minister must have felt this was a safe and good deal for Canada if they inked it, because they could have held back and just kind of, in a way, because of the fact that the midterms are coming up and a case could be made that, you know, Mr. Trump is causing, you know, harm to some industries at home, um, you know, they had some leverage. So I'm not sure exactly why, but they decided to settle at this stage. And we'll have to scrutinize what the settlement is to see for certain. But certainly the Canadian government, you know, and, and congrats to the PM for letting his uh, foreign minister take, you know, who was very capable, take the lead and do this and not sort of inject himself into it because he, he saw right away that when he injected himself into it with personality, kind of back and forth with Mr. Trump, you know, the only one who won was the tabloids. 